Welcome everyone to the Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so dedicated to the show that he showers before every time we record. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Sorry about the mess. My contractor promised me he'd be done months ago. The Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 309, Revelations, is brought to you by Felix Manning Home Improvements. For the discerning, do it yourself -er. <laughs> Wow, yes. Pete, it only was in that little uh, sponsorship there that I realized that uh, maybe the baddies underpinning this entire season, not Fisk, not Felix Manning, uh, questionable home contractors. Uh, hey, I think like everything else in this show, they should be looked into. Pete, tomorrow, November 8th, is when we will be watching and podcasting the latest Star Trek Discovery short trek entitled Calypso about a topic of which I do not know. Hashtag spoiler free. But here's what I do know. We have a contest going. It's in its waning 24 hours or so. Pete, tell us about the contest. How can we win a thing? Yes, you can win a copy, a Blu-ray copy of Star Trek Discovery Season 1. There is no limit to the number of entries you can have, so you can stuff that ballot box there to, to get picked. Uh, you could leave a review to any of our 15 feeds on iTunes. You can uh, like our Facebook page. You can share a post from our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter. You can retweet us on Twitter. All of these are going to get your name into the hopper multiple times if done so. And we will be picking that uh, winner on uh, tomorrow night's podcast. Exciting stuff, Pete, and certainly best of luck to, uh, to everybody who has helped spread the word about the contest, about Fantastic Geek, and I uh, can't wait to find out who the winner is. Order in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Matt wanders into a dark bar where Father Lantham is hustling pool. Matt wants to talk about Mother Maggie, though. Why was Lantham so secretive all those years? Well, he had a secret to keep. Flashback to the old times, with a younger sister Maggie bringing other nuns in training in tow to the boxing matches. A charming boxer needs her in his corner. Later they're alone, enjoying the flesh. Later still there's a baby, but she's disengaged from the boy. Even later, Father Lantham and two nuns come and collect the withdrawn Maggie, Jack looking on. Flashback over, Matt feels like his talks with Lantham have all been a lie. Shame on you, Father Lantham. Elsewhere, Ray Nadim sits in his car in the morning, still bleeding. He's meeting the FBI brass in the suburbs. Ray sits gingerly with Wynne and Hatley in a recorded meeting. He lays it all on the table. Fisk has manipulated the FBI in general and Ben Pointexter in particular. Nadim is ready to fall on the sword for it all, too. He's placed on leave and hands over his gun and badge. Then Wynne is shot by Hatley with Ray's gun. She tells Ray to sit. Felix Manning arrives and Ray's been framed completely for it all. Wilson Fisk is his boss now. 
The credits show the episode is written by showrunner Eric Olson and co-executive producer Sam Ernst and directed by Jennifer Lynch, veteran of shows like American Horror Story, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Jessica Jones. At Karen's apartment, Karen is ready to run. Foggy says that she should stay put, even though she's admitted to killing Wesley. Foggy gives her money and promises they'll get through this, but she's off. At the church, still in the day, Sister Maggie is taking Marcus to his new adoptive family. Lantham is there, info-sharing that now Matthew knows about his mother. She runs to his abandoned bed and cries out. Later, she's at the park with some of the orphanage children. Karen runs to her, and the reporter learns Matt is gone, seemingly for good. Sister Maggie shares what is now called postpartum depression, but then was looked at as a betrayal to the Lord. Sister Maggie sees herself as a failure now. Karen is ready to run, but Maggie offers help. After all, the church has been helping people hide for 2,000 years. Stay around, and you can be hiding around the globe in a week. Elsewhere, Matt breaks into Fogwell's gym. In his head, he talks to his father, saying nothing has changed. Pop should have told him. Matt blames his father for not taking the dive. Head dad says it was about living by a code. Matt has no BS code. He's ready to kill Fisk. In the shower, at home, Ray inspects his wound, guilt and terror on his face. He's trapped in life. Someone's come to see him, though. It's Dex. The congenial Mr. Point Dexter is there for some home cooking. They talk in private, though. Good news is Fisk wants Ray kept alive. They're going to spend the day together, partner. At the office, Ray gives Matt a call, Dex listening on. Later, Hatley makes an announcement to the office. Dex is back on duty. It's a great day, and thanks, Ray. Someday you'll get payback. Later, Hatley brings Ray into the conference room. The guilty are assembled, all under the thumb of codename Kingpin. Time for another FBI roundup, or two. Batty John Hammer is roughed up and arrested, as is the stately Mr. Star. And hey, so is Rosalie Carbone. The montage ends with the rotten crew taking over the Fisk detail, Hatley's orders. In the elevator, there are no mics but cameras on them. Hatley says Ray could have been stopped, but now he's dirty and he's in. Ray's been marked to be turned over for a year, starting with his sister-in-law's health care being ended. Think about Seema and Sammy and get in line. They go see Fisk and Ray takes off the Kingpin's tracker. They're going for a drive. In Foggy's apartment, Marcy says Foggy can't stop now. She, of course, is talking about his bid to become district attorney. He's a natural and a social media sensation. Later at Nelson Meets, the family is so happy, though brother Theo is scared. Take back everything you said about Fisk. Foggy can't figure out why, then realizes that something is up. The something is a loan from Red Lion Bank, achieved by their loan officer helping move some numbers around. Take back the fist claims where the bank calls in the loans and Theo goes to jail and mom and dad too. Back to the gym, Matt's working the bag when he gets a call from Ray. Fisk is on the move with dirty agents. Matt, to head dad, says that he needs Mai Tai ropes to keep Dex close. Those Mai Tai guys are the best. Dad's words turn into head Fisk's words, accusing Matt of being nothing. Matt imagines killing Fisk. At the meet, the rogues gallery of arrested bad guys have been quietly assembled at a closed restaurant. Fisk arrives, ready to pitch an opportunity. He's offering protection from Fisk from the feds. 
Star says no and is promptly killed by Daredevil Dex. Rosalie, however, is in. This is intercut with Matt wandering around the presidential hotel, not taking the bait. At Fisk's meet, it's confirmed. No black-clad Daredevil. But back at the hotel, agents are searching the stairwells, but still miss Matt. He enters the Fisk penthouse, the closet, the secret stairwell. The pacing moves to a crawl, and Matt sneaks into the monitor room. Only Mrs. Shelby is there, fearing for her life. The cameras come back on, and Matt overhears that Karen is to be killed. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat in the Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, we must, I suppose, start with Father Lantum. After all, Daredevil, our protagonist, he is antagonized by Father Lantum in this episode. Father Lantum, villain, in your view? Keeping secrets as asked of him? Where's the line? Shaking a dude down in the pool hall, number one. (laughs) Not identified as a priest. Matt spills those beans And then I love the end of the conversation where Matt pats him on the shoulder and says, shame on you. But basically all the anger in Matt's teenage years is completely justified through the actions of Father Lantham. From Matt's perspective, yes. I mean, I I certainly don't know the inner workings of the Catholic church of what is asked uh, from Catholic priests, etc. But it just seems to me basic, you know, basic um, uh, confession keeping for lack of a better word. If, if it was asked of father Lantham to not divulge this event from Maggie's past, uh, though there might be negative outcomes or hurt feelings or whatever, I, I kind of want to give him credit for, keeping the secret that was asked of him in a, in, you know, a secret that was given in a, in a private way. To have watched Matt struggle though, the way that he did, um, I, I think gives Matt grounds to be angry in fairness in, in father Lantham and Maggie's defense as well. Um, they were never far from him. So they looked out for him, Uh, she had cared for him at one point in his life. Um, and the, the double betrayal of the the story she gave a couple episodes back with the, uh, nightmares, the time she did not, um, come to his rescue with those and that she was shut out by him. Um, but now that this is all out there in the open, uh, yeah, I still think he's he's pretty justified in that anger. Father Father Lantham, he needs some forgiveness. Somebody whose actions I dare say are less forgivable, at least on the <laughs> on the very raw and bloody surface. That is, of course, uh, SAC Tammy Hatley, the immediate superior of uh, of Ray Nadim, who we see shoot a good man in cold blood. I was absolutely stunned by this twist. Uh, did not see it coming. Um, kudos to selling the uh, the blue tape and the uh, the drop cloths in the kitchen in a convincing way. Um, and going back and rewatching it because initially I was like, "Where's the daughter? Did she just overhear this?" 
because there's that split second that you don't realize um, Hatley took the shot as opposed to somebody else. Like a ricochet. I, I immediately was like, oh, it's a ricochet from Dex who's you know three yeah. houses down and bounced it he, off the he didn't, slide. He did not occur to me, but I, I did not think it was her. And then you piece together, wait, he just slid the gun over. Now she's got a gun in her hands. Um, and then, of course, Manning's involvement. But, yeah. Um, and I, I'm going to go back to the, the story, though. She said she had another daughter. That daughter was killed. They made it look like a hit and run. So coercion, I think, in terms of protecting her other daughter, Allie. Coercion to be true. And I think that helps us understand uh, the twist in a way that's that's palatable story-wise. And I kind of don't want to suspend story disbelief to be like, oh, if I was in Hatley's position, how would I feel? Because it's just a completely terrifying position to be in particularly with the the loss of one child already that said don't we depend on good people standing up when needed to stand up against even the unstoppable badness uh, and it takes one person who then is joined and then is joined to stop the bad thing um i i feel like that's why hatley is going to remain more villain than redeemable person backed into a corner She's in a line of work. She's in a calling, if if you can call it that. I I, I dare say I, I would I would hope most people in law enforcement feel there's a a calling to a certain degree. She's there to make good with a capital G, and she's doing the opposite of that now. You know, time time to risk other sacrifice. Even though I don't want to sacrifice fictional Hatley daughter to Kingpin, time to stand up and stand for stand up for what's right. Felix Banning for somebody that's barely appeared on our screens has had such a large influence throughout this season here collecting the evidence of this orchestrated murder, um, getting Nadim to, uh, to fall in line with all these other FBI agents who have been co-opted. I, I had a professor in college who, would make this sound effect of like chuk, 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 when something bad was being suggested or something bad was on the horizon and whatever it was that we were discussing in class. I think he had gotten it from a sixties movie. Maybe it was one of those Australian rain sticks from something. I don't remember the origin, but I, I feel like with Felix Manning, that's what happens now where it's like, you see him show up and chuk, 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 trouble, trouble either just happened and it's not a little trouble or it's not an accidental trouble. It's a planned trouble and a terrible trouble. Uh, and if it hasn't happened already, then it's about to happen because he's just arrived. That sounds like a really annoying habit. <laughs> it was a little bit different in a large classroom when you're discussing Chaucer or Shakespeare or whatever. But, you know, Pete, we're in the middle of our list. Who's next? <laughs> that, of course, would be Dex. Dex triumphant here. You know, he's really enjoying the, you know, hey, partner. And, you know, boy, can't wait to, you know, have breakfast with your wife and all of that. He's so, he's so smug. He's so mm -hmm. validated. He's been told no, Pete, by those, 
those bad people, you know, those women who have a mind of their own, people who look like Ray and the Deem have told him no. But good news, Pete, now he's got Kingpin who tells him, yes, Dex, how you feel, those things you want, no one should tell you no. And it's completely apparent to the viewer that he's a bad person, that his idea of right and wrong is seriously screwed up. You know, the throwing of the fork at uh, one of the crime bosses that shows up around Fisk's table in that rather unusual restaurant that is constructed like a safe deposit box room with a magnum of champagne on the wall there. Not quite sure where that is. It was certainly interesting and a you know good place to uh, to host this meeting. But yeah, Dex between showing up at Nadim's home, between you know donning the the daredevil outfit again at that meeting, casts a long shadow. Yeah, and it's that whole scene is such an interesting one. Actually, I, I had not stopped to consider much about the setting i'll assume it's a it's a real restaurant somewhere although it easily could be a set but all that new york filming that they're doing there um and that of course is kind of the the repository for a bunch of other people on our on our baddie list uh starting with john hammer wonder if there's any relation to justin i don't know but um john hammer a baddie pete what's there to say about good old john hammer uh he takes a crowbar to the or another utensil uh in that garage the back of the head um and uh dex pulls him out and of course he objects when uh fisk levies that tax there uh that they need to pay forward but uh he intends to pay it given what happens to star yeah, we we have a star there as well. Also, really nice use of Rosalie Carbone. Uh, I must confess, Pete, in double checking her last name, I got a got a sense that she's not going to be in a ton of the remaining episodes. But you know, great use of the actress, great use of some some easy cross pollination from Luke Cage to here without it being a it's all connected thing. And oh man, you need to watch the you know eight previous seasons to understand what's going on. It was nice to see a familiar face, baddie, though she might be. Well, the character does have an association in the comics, most notably with uh, Frank Castle. So we might not be done seeing her just yet. Ooh, fingers crossed there, because she really is a she's a fun character. Uh, Pete, also at the table, we have uh, we have Carter, along with a uh, a gentleman with a prominent beard, and I think you could say this, Pete, the Rogues Gallery reflecting ethnicities and points of view and perspectives galore. Yeah. I mean, a Hasidic Jew here. One of the things that Eric Olson talked a lot about at New York comic con was that these Sopranos served as an inspiration for this third season of daredevil. And if you go back through the Sopranos, yes, you most notably have, uh, Italian American crime represented, but you see crime, uh, you see people who are out to prey on others in every ethnicity. Last but certainly not least, Pete, we have uh, we have Fisk himself 
the the kingpin name kind of restarted in this episode. We don't use the name Fisk here. We call him codename Kingpin. Uh, so Pete, the kingpin increasingly back. I think the code name was a little on the nose. I applaud them for getting it in the show finally, but I don't know if this was the right way to do it. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off the record theories. You be the judge. Pete with Matt having this this mental dialogue with his father uh this was head the first, dad head dad indeed this was the first time that i that i viewed those discussions in a different light when it's happened in the past with fisk it kind of was just like well you have to have your hero and your villain talk and they can't because of the way the story is and it's vince d'onofrio gotta get him in the episode here this was the first time i wondered to myself is something wrong with Matt where he thinks these conversations are more than, uh, uh, you know, that of an imaginary person or him talking out loud or, 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 or an internal conversation that we are seeing presented externally? Is something up with his perspective of reality? Given that he beat the crap out of uh, one of them that morphed into Fisk, I'm thinking his judgment's a little off. I'm I'm reminded too in the uh, in the Born Again uh, storyline from the comics that has since been collected as a graphic novel. Uh, at least one of the issues ends with him, like I think it's he he thinks he is asleep in this wonderful, great, comfortable bed, and he kind of rolls over and takes a fetal position, and then you realize no, he's actually feverish and hallucinating, and he's sleeping in a pile of garbage in an alley somewhere. Um, so again, I kind of wondered. Are we headed towards something from there where things are just not right upstairs? But time will tell. Pete, we are getting down for the number of, of episodes that are left here, but certainly plenty of time to reveal, you know, to, to reveal trouble, trouble in the old noggin of Matt Murdock. The flashback sequence that we have in the teaser, first off, Matt, a 13 and a half minute teaser to this episode that concludes with the murder of uh, the FBI agent that's taking Nadim's statement. Um, and you think of how much goes on in this sequence. We have the, the flashback of Maggie, you know, meeting, um, it's, it's Jack Murdoch, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, Jack uh, falling in love, having the baby, uh, what's later identified as postpartum depression and, you know, being secreted away by Father Lantham and what looked like the two nuns that she was in nun training school with. Indeed. I, you know, it's funny, Pete. Yes, they definitely were the same two ones. Uh, I didn't notice whether they uh, were wearing black habits, the white habits. I went down this wonderful Wikipedia. They were. They, they, they So they were still novice this. sisters. Yeah. Uh, well, they, they had, um, they had changed their outfits. True. But well, here, what I had learned down my little Wikipedia hunt was, uh, the, the white habit showing that, uh, you are still in novice status and the, the black habit that you've officially taken your vows. Pete Daredevil teaching me things about the Catholic faith. 
there you go. Um, something as a card carrying Catholic who, uh, who went to church uh, the other day, I'm not informed about. <laughs> oh, that's okay, Pete. What other theories do we have? How about Nadim's wound here? Uh, in the shower, TV code, Matt, a wound yet not treated, and uh, pretty sure that bad boy's infected. Now, that is so interesting for you to say that because I read it as TV code. As best I could see, it looked like it was a through and through. You know, yes, you should not have something that's perpetually bleeding for what is probably approaching 12 hours at this point. Um, in, in this universe or in the TV universe, that's not a good idea. But it crossed my mind like, oh, it actually doesn't look like that bad. It just looks like a really bad gouge. So patch that thing up, put a little pressure on there. You're okay. Now, the fact that he has not put pressure on there and continues to bleed, um, you are probably more right than not, Pete, in terms of the story effect, to which my response would be, then maybe they should have made that wound look a little bit more ghastly in the shower. Who knows? We'll have to uh, circle back on that one. Dex is back at work, Matt. Uh, seems a little too quick that this has all been taken care of. I mean, we know the the FBI, many, many of them are in deep here. But even then, it seems like the wheels of justice cleared this one up for Benjamin Poindexter a little too quickly. I will disagree. And here's why I kind of read it, particularly with, with, with Hatley's flippant way of being like, you know, and I'll kind of insert some words here, but like, you know, those bozos in DC that don't understand the real situation, they finally figured out what's what and got the story right. You know, I think that we're all familiar with, not just our bosses, but our boss's boss's boss that really has no idea what's going on in the in reality in the trenches of 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 our work worlds. Um, and it would be no surprise for them to finally get a comprehensive report to realize what we've been saying all along. You know, I think that's something that we can all relate to, and I think that's what Hatley is invoking here in terms of Dex saved a bunch of guys from getting killed, guys and gals from getting killed, uh, and. You know, if there's been a couple eggs broken along the way, uh, that's a lot, a lot less important, Hatley is invoking, than all the good that Dex has done. So let's get him back on the force. I kind of bought it as a believable workplace situation. And then we talk about Foggy here and how his family has been netted up in this not just his brother, but also his mom and dad signing off on that loan that Red Lion uh, Bank has. My concern there, Matt, you know, Foggy's heard that Red Lion is up to no good. He's been very demonstrative about, well, I'm going to, you know, smack talk Fisk in public, where if he takes a shot at me, then he does it in public, and everybody knows he's, he's up to no good. Why not take the same tact with the bank, like, this is a corrupt lending institution that has in some way ensnared my brother and my family. Uh, go ahead and call the loan. Next call, FDIC. I think because in the interim, you know, the shop is in trouble. Theo might be looking at the inside of a jail cell if only for booking or whatever. Mom and well, dad yeah, are going to go I'll through. I'll tell you what, you're, you're right. That, 
now that you you bring that up, he he had admitted to cooking the books, so he is he is culpable. So yes, and, they, and mom and dad might be found not guilty because they just signed a thing after the right. trial, but in the interim, they're going to be charged as well. Pete, I would add to all of this. Do you know the name Peter Halpin? It sounds familiar. Well, I never knew the name of Peter Halpin until I looked him up about 30 seconds ago. That's the actor uh, who plays uh, Theo Nelson in Daredevil. Okay. Proof that there are no small parts, only small actors. And this is a, a, a big actor who, when he pulls Foggy aside, just the fear on his face mm -hmm. that he has screwed up himself his brother, his parents, their whole family, the family business, the name, the legacy, etc. All of that. You know, this guy's been in what, like three, four scenes thus far. I don't know how many are ahead. I would bet maybe not more than five, six, seven scenes to go. You know, it's, it's not a whole lot. Boy, are you going to be uh, shocked when he saves everybody at the end of the season? He comes in and goes, I'm, I'm Daredevil Jr. Um, but I mean, he, they call him the butcher. Hell's <laughs> Kitchen. Um, he sell. He just he sells the moment of of fear so greatly, and I would argue that's what the whole that whole foggy storyline hinges on Peter Halpin's performance there, and he sells the the danger. Absolutely. Is it Matt a little much for Hatley to tell Nadim? He's been marked more than a year. Why do you think your sister-in-law lost health coverage? It, it seems a little too convenient. We're going to go all the way back and start that domino at, well, Kingpin gave your sister-in-law cancer, and then he got to the insurance company, and then he lowered your credit, and then he got out of jail. Well, a and I know you're you're adopting a a a, a joking tone here. Yes. A, I don't think she was also Wilson Fisk invented cancer. <laughs> Obviously, she wasn't suggesting uh, that that Fisk was the source of cancer. Here's what I imagine, Pete. I imagine everybody knows Rand Enterprises was Matt, <sighs> and Net Netflix uh, developed the the uh, antidote for that, didn't they? <laughs> um, I think that we have a situation where clearly a year plus ago Fisk was starting to plan all of this. I imagine that there might be 10 Ray Nadims out there and maybe only, you know, maybe nine of them Ray's is a dead Nadims. end. Ray's Nadims. Ray's Nadims, you know, I mean, not by name, but just in terms of, hey, who are some people who might end up in the Fisk orbit who we could start to look at starting to turn now now meaning a year ago a year plus maybe for some of them whatever the problem was in their life it went away on their own for good or bad or whatever it might be or they didn't take the bait or whatever it was but i imagine the fisk and his people laid a big net and that net has resulted in getting not a lot of people i mean think to that fbi conference room you know it's like seven eight agents but it's enough to be pushing here and pushing there and Hey, uh, good agent who's on Fisk duty. You know what? Uh, we're getting punished. We got to watch him now. You go home early. You know, it's enough to kind of push the corners enough to really get some momentum going there. I buy it. I, I, I just buy it. And I think too, story-wise, it sells to Ray 
though you are backed in a corner right now, Ray, and though we can invoke watch out for Seema and watch out for Sammy, Ray's instinct is I'm still going to go to internal affairs or the attorney general or NYPD or whatever. And she's saying, you don't understand, Ray. This has been a year in the making. And there's so many people around you, not just immediately who can get hurt, but who you can't trust. It's just not worth it. Just give up. Well, certainly the susceptibility of these agents at the hands of someone who's highly manipulative in this episode, you know, fittingly revelations between um, Maggie and, you know, the, the insight we gain there and what's gone on with Fisk and the FBI. But I have to wonder, too. So, you know, Nadim has this, uh, you know, subordinate relationship with uh, Hatley calls her boss. Clearly they've worked together a long time. She had a daughter killed in a hit and run. And like, this was not like on the radar at all. Like I, I feel almost like we should have had that mentioned a little earlier. You know, it, it takes part of a scene like, you know, you're, you're back at work ever since your, your daughter was killed. Maybe you should take some time or, you know, that, that lady's a, a, a tough old bird because, you know, the daughter died and she was back in a week or something like that. Um, they did not tip their hand at all for us to suggest she had been corrupted, which makes that, that twist the, the murder of that other agent, uh, from OPR, uh, investigating all the more shocking but maybe just hinting at, you know, oh, I have two daughters and one was killed instead of kind of blindsiding the team there in the elevator. I'm thinking of some of the discussions we've had on our Star Trek Discovery podcast, clues we had picked up along the way. And at least we had played with the clues, whether we whether we'd put together them in the right order with the right predictions. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But how that was such a well-structured first season where where stuff would stick out and you'd say, oh, is this a thing? I'm not quite sure. I wonder if there's some alternate universe, Pete, where the first episode or two with Hatley in it and if passing references made there, you know, do we have a 10-minute discussion going, oh, man, well, if she's had this loss, well, we know Kingpin, blah, 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 blah. Like, would that have potentially blown it to a point that that's the greater sin versus keeping it close to the vest i also think there might be and again this is this like gray area of pete i'm now going to speak for hatley a fake person who has a fake loss that's not a real thing but i'm still gonna you know even though it's a terrible topic you know at what point in the grieving process is she not bringing that to work anymore and you've had the you've had the time and you've had the the discussion with coworkers, and now it's just simply left in the past and people don't bring it up anymore to me that kind of makes it even a little bit more believable that maybe it was just far enough in the past where you know ray paid his respects 22 months ago when the death occurred and now kind of since then it's back to work and kind of nobody talks about it i don't know a touchy subject but to me i err on the side of i think the show did the right thing i mean certainly accept it and it's acceptable as it's presented. You, you just wonder if, if maybe they could have hinted a little bit at that. This, this show has been this season so economically smart 
with where they've put pieces. Um, particularly when the cliche is, oh, well, Netflix bloat, Netflix bloat. They, they have too much. Uh, I, I recently read uh, a Facebook friend uh, say this season was, was slow at times. I disagree. <laughs> um, and th- there's been no fat. Uh, so, you know, I, I will fall back on the producer's decision not to kind of hint at that, um, probably for wanting to maintain that twist. Um, and then here we are, Matt, you know, Karen is out in the open now. They know where she is. And we end that episode with Matt thinking he's where he needs to be to kill, uh, Fisk and everybody's heading after Karen. And, I mean, you, you speak about pace there. When he's making his way down the secret stairwell, the pace basically comes to a standstill. They're, they're now doing, you know, there's kind of no edited flow of time. It's like step, step, step. And it works because you don't know what's down there. I fully expected when he opens the door, somebody's going to be shooting at him. Or there's the, uh, there's the computer lady, Mrs. Uh, Shelby. She's going to turn around and boom, she's got the dynamite vest or she's got a gun or whatever it is. Instead, it's just that Hitchcock thing of countdown. Tell the audience that the bomb's going to explode in 10 minutes time. That's tension. The real trick is to not blow up the bomb. Well, here, Pete, we think, as you said, the showdown is going to be somewhere in the hotel. Instead, there's a whole different showdown about to go down and it's taking us into the next episode. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Pete, we had a pal on Twitter concerned that this episode had an anti-Semitic representation uh, for uh, for that one gentleman in the rogues gallery there that, uh, that Fisk assembles. Your thoughts? I don't think it was anti-Semitic, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, again, we have a cross-section we have an African-American, we have an Italian-American uh, woman, we have uh, a, a white male, maybe Irish, I don't know. We never really get anything else about Star. Uh, we have an Asian-American woman. Um, we, we have a wide cross-section. There was nothing directly anti-Semitic in terms of epithets or anything like that. Okay, he's an ultra-Orthodox Jew, uh, likely Hasidic. Um, Apart from that, yeah, I mean, is it a stereotype that the Jewish mobster is a ultra-Orthodox Jew as opposed to um, any other variant? Well, I I think they wanted to identify uh, that mobster as, as Jewish and all right, putting a criminal in a yarmulke might have been a way to do it as well. Um, again, Sopranos as uh, direction for this season, they had on at least two occasions that I can think of on the Sopranos, they had dealings with uh, Hasidic uh, mobsters. There was uh, one group that had moved into a hotel and uh, – you know, we're, uh, we're using it for illegal doings, prostitution, uh, drug dealing. And, uh, Tony was actually contacted by, um, 
another Hasidic uh, fringe character who uh, was trying to get what's known as a get, was trying to uh, secure a divorce or the equivalent of an annulment. Um, and then they got tied in with that and it got super murky. Um, I, I don't think it was, uh, anti-Semitic. I kind of look at that, that rogues gallery at the table there. And obviously everybody's a villain, but if you suspend the villainy, it's like, yeah, this is New York. This is a cross section of people coming together for a common purpose. Yes. In this particular scene, it's the common purpose of, we don't want to go to jail because we're bad people and the FBI nabbed us, but they're actually pawns of Kingpin. Who's the worst bad guy here. But suspend all that for a second it's like it's a wide representation of of humanity and people in this country and people in new york and that's a good thing even though they're up to bad to bad dealings there pete i would certainly understand that somebody might think it's anti-semitic but then by nature of the scene having you know uh an african-american bad guy is that a stereotype uh, by having an Italian American uh, mafiosa, is that a stereotype? Um, it, it's an intriguing question to ask. I I don't know that just because somebody's there representing uh, a group makes it a slur. To Facebook, Matt, we had recorded on uh, Saturday and released it on Saturday a. Uh, a kind of a state of the union for Marvel Cinematic Universe TV, given the, the two cancellations of uh, Iron Fist and Luke Cage. And then there had been an article as well that Daredevil season three numbers were down, even though Netflix Netflix doesn't let other people in Netflix even see their numbers, let alone people outside. But uh, James Kellen listened to that and he responded, love from the Jersey Shore. It's always a thrill to have a tweet or comment read on your shows. And that's James at Big Killen on Twitter. Your dialogue can make a bad day bearable. Listening to your analysis on all the goings on in the Marvel TV universe took me back to some comments Stephen Amell of Arrow fame made when he was asked about the DC Arrowverse crossover episodes. He remarked that he was okay with the extremely long hours due to extra coordination of multiple casts as it's part of the job of an actor playing a superhero on TV. His gripe was really with the culture of TV in general that allowed showrunners to place him number 74 on the calls list if he was technically guest starring on another show, even if he had a majority of the screen time slash dialogue. Those crossover episodes aren't really driven by the story arcs of one shoe. I think he means show here. One show versus another within any particular episode. So Arrow may have more to do than the Flash on the Flash crossover episode. He felt like showrunners overdo it when it comes to prioritizing their own cast slash crew over quote unquote guest stars. With this in mind, the blow up over Luke Cage needing rewrites to incorporate the other show's characters makes sense. 
Non-creatives in Hollywood tend to ruin things, but creatives can be pretty inflexible inside a multiverse franchise too. Are Marvel movies the exception? Do showrunners and writers not know what they are signing up for? First of all, I love the detail that he got into there. Initially, when you were reading it, I was like, all right, Pete, we're spending a lot of time talking about Arrow and the Flash here, but the example is a wonderful one, mm-hmm. and the, the, the amount of detail is is so incredibly pertinent. Um, I think, let's talk about MCU. You know, Again, there's kind of the, the film side and the TV side, which are, by and large, separate entities. But let's talk about the MCU in general. I think absolutely there was a time where the creatives in charge of a particular thing did not understand how they fit in. Uh, That's why you see many of the, um, let's say the first half of MCU films, a lot of those directors don't come back or don't have nice things to say. Some of the actors, ditto. Um, I think that's because, you you know, there was this notion of, and uh, for example, I have not heard complaints from Kenneth Branagh, but Kenneth Branagh, Oscar nominee before 30 directs one Thor movie, then does not come back. Um, you know, is that because at a certain point he's like, wait, I'm not in charge of this thing entirely. There's this guy who wears a hat all the time named Kevin who tells me what to do. Like, <laughs> I don't quite get this. Um, Edgar Wright, a, a larger example, et cetera, et cetera. I have to think too on the TV end, you know, I mean, you, you get the sense that Jeff Loeb is involved to a great deal but there's so many shows it's not like he's in the writing room for every show every day um you think of the time and effort and love and blood and sweat and tears that Chihodari Coker has put into what is Luke Cage the show same thing for Melissa Rosenberg for uh, Jessica Jones her time developing the show all the way back to what 2012 2010 you know it's been been super long time um there's maybe a certain point where, hey, show is greenlit. Here you go. Here's a pile of money. Here's input from all the people you get input from, including your bosses at Netflix and Marvel and all that. But go make a show. And then X number of years into it, all of a sudden it's like, hey, you think you run this show, Chio Hadari Coker, that is about Luke Cage and Marvel and comics, but also about the black experience and Harlem and uh, people of color from north america and and the caribbean and so on and so forth and all this uh but now we have these different story demands that you need to put in i can see how that friction could exist and i could see how he would be very protective of luke cage and all that luke cage represents um similarly i mean we know uh even if jessica jones gets renewed past this next season melissa rosenberg leaving after this season you know has she reached a point where it's like oh i'm not actually I'm not as much of a boss as other people are when they run their own shows because I have Marvel to deal with and I have Netflix to deal with and this and that. I just want to run a show and be be captain of the fleet, not in charge of one boat. I think with James asking a question here, do they not know what they're signing up for? I think that they do, but in um, Coker's case in particular – all right, here they have the first half of the season outlined and they're moving forward and then, whoa, 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 not so fast. You need more of uh, Danny Rand of Rand Enterprises in this. We, we don't see enough. And this is after having incorporated him to perhaps the most successful uh, level 
he had been in uh, that second season of Luke Cage. So it's really interesting to ponder. And yeah, there's kind of a, this is my show. I want to do it my way, but you're in a larger universe there where there are people to report to if it's not Loeb, um, other executives up the chain, whether it's Marvel, whether it's Netflix, before we get even to the idea of Kevin Feige running the whole thing as far as Marvel Studios is concerned. And you know what occurs to me, Pete? I know that sometimes when it comes to cancellations and especially on the broadcast end and TV by the numbers and the cancel bear and all that there there's you can see some of these cancellations coming and certainly after the fact with Iron Fist you can say oh well the social media numbers were down how does that show for clicks and plays and all that but we also know the flip side which is let's again using the broadcast model you know oftentimes people don't know whether they're canceled or picked up until that phone rings on the Friday night when when calls are going out. Similarly, let's kind of replay in real time those two cancellations. The cancellation of Iron Fist was essentially the character's not done with. And then what do we, you know, then later we heard that next week executives are trying to have all these asks for Luke Cage. Then there's the no, then Luke Cage gets canceled. So it may well have been that the Netflix plan the Friday that they canceled uh, Iron Fist was to have those characters flip over and, and kind of like my point is there might be data to suggest that all these perceptions are in fact the reality and that it unfolded in real time in that way. And when they said no, it was all right, we'll chop another show off. Yeah. I mean, until somebody talks, we can only speculate. Well, Pete, we are going to keep on talking all this stuff, and it's made possible by the people who keep us listener-supported on patreon.com slash fantasticgeek. Absolutely. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, and then you can set your level of commitment from there. But uh, everybody that helps us out there, you make this possible. So thank you. Particularly Pete with the the home stretch of of this season of Daredevil starting to come into focus. Uh, it's uh, it's just another opportunity for us to say thank you to the people who support us. But people, Pete, of course, can be in touch with you on Twitter. How can they find you there? You can find me on Twitter at Peter P I E T E R J K L R K E T E L A A R ten thousand. 144 followers can't be wrong and while i'm personally on twitter as looking back lost do be in touch with the podcast comment on fantasticgeek.com check us out on twitter instagram and gmail where we are fantastic geek as well but wait Pete, there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek with the ph all one word like it today well, Pete, we will be back on both the Pop Culture Podcast feed and the Daredevil Podcast feed come Friday to talk episode 310 as we just race to the end of this season. Uh, and, of course, continuing that uh, that uh, Sunday-Wednesday model through the end of the season. Talking God Friended Me as well. Talking Star Trek Discovery as well. It's busy times, Pete. It's good times to be a geek and good times to be listening to Fantastic Geek that i will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word nice work <laughs>